the Bank for Canadian Entrepreneurs is a proud partner of the Startup Women podcast. BDC is here for women entrepreneurs in their efforts to move forward and achieve their business goals. To meet their specific needs, BDC provides financing, strategic advice, and has a wide selection of free resources. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women. BDC is here for what's ahead. Scotiabank is proud to co-present the Startup Women podcast. Through the Scotiabank Women Initiative, Scotiabank aims to help advance women-led businesses with access to capital, education, and mentorship. To learn more, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. In the month of March, in celebration of International Women's Day, Startup Canada, Startup Communities, leading women entrepreneurs, government, and industry partners will come together to celebrate the contributions and achievements of women entrepreneurs to Canada's startup ecosystem. From the beginning, the Thrive Podcast has always been about creating and curating educational content and actionable advice from leading experts, entrepreneurs, and support organizations that provide capital, mentorship, training, tools, and all kinds of other support for women founders. Women entrepreneurs across Canada challenge the status quo every day, helping to build a more gender-balanced world and to release the full potential of women founders. But despite their tireless efforts, systemic barriers continue to exist, often making it incredibly difficult to start a business, let alone scale and grow. That's why we are pivoting away from the Thrive Podcast for Women Entrepreneurs to the Startup Women Podcast, because we are here to assist and champion all women entrepreneurs, not just those who are thriving. This podcast is a production of Startup Canada, Canada's entrepreneurship organization, and is presented in partnership with the Business Development Bank of Canada and Scotiabank. I'm your host, Kayla Isabel, CEO at Startup Canada. Welcome to the show. We are thrilled to have Jess Mantel on our show today. Jess is the co-founder of Abokichi Inc., makers of the gold Sophie award-winning Okazu miso chili oil sauce and food waste diverting instant miso soup. Jess grew up in a Toronto suburb and earned a Bachelor of Design from York University and Sheridan College and a master's in media design from Keio University in Tokyo. While in Japan, Jess worked as a graphic designer and reported on technology for the Japan Times newspaper. She developed a fondness for trying new foods and ultimately caught the entrepreneurship bug. Abokichi was born out of a desire to share some culinary delight with Western customers and to create a company with super high quality uh, customer service, employee satisfaction, and social responsibility. When not sitting at her desk with her Abokichi hat on, Jess enjoys experimenting in the kitchen, hiking, and playing with her toddler. She was also recently recognized as a changemaker as a part of the Inniskillen Changemaker Initiative in partnership with Startup Canada. Welcome to the show, Jess. Thanks, Kayla. It's a pleasure to chat with you. No problem. I am salivating already with all of these fantastic words <laughs> that, that uh, you know are really uh, you know, a part of your business. So I'm really excited to learn more about your entrepreneurial journey. So Thanks. before we dive in, what's really the one most important thing that you want our audience to take away from our chat today, Jess? Um, I guess they should just do, do something, just start. <laughs> so if you have an idea and you want to start a business, take action as soon as possible and then 
pivot. You're going to probably have to pivot and adapt and change at some point. Um, but by taking action, you'll learn, you'll grow, um, you'll see what other options and possibilities um, might be actually better suited for a business, but you won't know until you just start. Mm, I love that piece of advice. That's a really great one that we often hear on the Thrive Podcast. So I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So take us on your, uh, your entrepreneurial journey. What um, really made you catch that entrepreneurship bug and launch Abokichi? Well, so Abokichi, I'd say, is my first um, real business venture. Um, while there's some, you know, business people in my extended family, this was not the case um, with my immediate family growing up. And um, I think that desire to create and make something new is always with me. Um, but it wasn't really until my experience during grad school in Japan mm -hmm. that I really gained some experience and confidence with this. So while it wasn't um, a business, you know, I did um, launch this project and we did a lot of pitching and, um, you know, the whole thing was kind of a crash course in PowerPoint and presenting. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of what got me started, like, you know, realizing, hey, I can I can make something from nothing. I can start something. Um, and when um, I was thinking about leaving Japan, I thought it's time to, to go back home to Canada. I knew I wanted to start a business. Um, my partner and I, um, well, my girlfriend at the time, wife now, um, we were brainstorming. What are some great things in Japan that might be interesting for Canadians? Mm -hmm. um, and we decided on onigiri, which is a Japanese rice ball. Um, it's just, it's a great product. It's ubiquitous in Japan. Mm. They're really, it's just a delicious, easy food. And we wanted to share this with people and figured that this would be, um, you know, a business opportunity. Um, we figured that the uniqueness and value of the, um, of the rice ball and the popularity of Japanese stuff in general, mm. um, would make this a hit. Um, this wasn't completely true as we did eventually pivot, mm. but, um, um, we also figured like food would be good for us because we could um, kind of start generating some revenue right away. There wouldn't be a lot of you know development involved. You make some food, you can sell it. So the start of the business was actually um, just three weeks after returning. I had mentioned to a friend, you know, I'm, I'm freshly back in the country. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what I want to do, but I, I well, I, I want to start this business, but you know. I don't know. I just got back and he suggested enter this pitch contest. So I did and I became a finalist and, um, and that was kind of really like the very first activity, but ended up really getting things started. Mm. Um, we ended up in farmer's markets. That's kind of where we really, you know, started regularly selling. Um, that went well, we got a store. Um, and then there was a pivot where we wanted to close the store and focus on, um, products, the products that you mentioned, the okazu and um, our uh, miso soup. Those are shelf-stable products. Um, so that's kind of where where we are now. We we um, produce products and sell them online and um, wholesale to grocery stores all over the place. Amazing. Amazing. So talk to us about, you know, bringing in the right partners during all of those different pivots, you know, shifting from the farmer's market, looking at brick and mortar, then being a manufactured food producer. Um, what did partnership really play in, in terms of decision making along that journey and how you navigated that process? 
Um, well, I'm not sure that like this process can be, you know, really easily um, repeatable. But mm. um, there are, <laughs> I mean, you know, circumstances are different. People are always going to be um, different. But um, yeah, I think I can share a bit about, you know, how we went through this and maybe yeah. things that would be, you know, uh, I guess, easy to repeat in that process. So I have two partners. Um, my, my initial co-founder is Fumi, who's also my wife. So in terms of um, and business partners, there was no selection process. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it just, you know, it turned out um, we, we do have a diverse set of skills. Obviously, mm. we, we get along and share some interests. Um, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so, well, not, not all couples can, can work together, but mm-hmm. that was basically how that partnership um, formed. Um, and then um, as for, you know, our third uh, partner, Bobby, um, he, we met him, um, just a little over three years ago now. And this was at the time we were still in the store, but we were, we decided, you know what, um, running this store is, you know, is like quite time consuming. We know we have a great product. We know we should, you know, um, focus on this because it's scalable. It's really great. Um, but, um, you know, we were kind of figuring out how to do that. And we figured we, we would um, like to close the store. Mm. And um, at that time, Bobby came in. He walked into the store. He had heard of our product. He actually kind of presented himself as, um, you know, uh, in, interested in becoming a partner. He's just like, I think cool. you're great. This is great. I'm looking for an opportunity. So, you know, it was quite serendipitous. Um, Fumi's convinced that her, her guardian angel brought him <laughs> uh, to us because the timing was so perfect. So, you know, as I mentioned, this is really, uh, you know, difficult to reproduce, like, you know, meeting partners in this way, I think. Um, but we did actually have a very long vetting process um, for Bobby. We were interested. The timing was right, but we needed time to see how we can all work together is this you know are we really going to gel are we really going to you know is this is this going to be a good partnership Mm. um so it was actually we invited him to work with us and it was actually a little over a year until we finally did bring him in Mm. um as as a partner and we all have you know some nice complementary skills um Fumi's background is in sales and HR um Bobby comes from a food manufacturing family. So he has a long history of um, food manufacturing and distribution and operations. And me, myself, my background is in um, design and administration. And so, yeah, it's been a few years now and um, yeah, it's going well. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. And so walk me through developing the actual product. So, you know, the miso chili oil sauce, um, and the food waste diverting instant miso soup. How did you actually, you know, create that product and get it onto the market? And what really makes it so different? Um, when, when you were sort of developing it early, early stage, bringing that traditional Japanese, um, you know, experience that you had in Japan, but bringing it to the Canadian market, walk us through the actual development of the product. So the Okazu was born out of this, you know, initial rice ball, um, uh, you know, rice ball product. We made it as a filling Mm -hmm. to put in the rice balls. We noticed that um, this was popular flavor of Mm -hmm. rice ball. So we put it in a jar. Wow. Um, Yeah. And so um, it is a 
it is, I guess the idea is inspired by, you know, things we did taste in Japan. And we've kind of innovated on it and developed our own recipe um, to suit North American markets, you know, palates. And, um, you know, we were looking for cleaner ingredient um, lists. We did start out at farmer's markets where there was tons of interaction. It was really great. You could get people's feedback. We love getting people to taste it because you can just see their reaction. Um, and so it really was a kind of, you know, organic development. We didn't make this thing and do a huge, big launch. We started at farmer's markets. Mm-hmm. People liked it. Um, and it grew um, from there. And, and with the miso soup, again, you know, we know that people were attracted to miso. Um, okazu is a miso chili condiment. Um, we could see this response to miso and people's interest in miso. So we, um, we, I guess, how did we meet the folks um, where we're getting this sakekasu? So sakekasu, I guess through networking through Japanese-related businesses in Toronto. Um, met the owner of the sake brewery and they were having, um, you know, they're making a great product, but there's the lease that's left over. There's this food waste um, after it's a byproduct of the sake brewing process that they were trying to do things with, you know, but it wasn't really their field. They really were doing, you know, focus on the sake, but we saw an opportunity to collaborate with them and make use of this really great product, um, um, the sake kasu, and that is one of the main ingredients in the miso soup. So yeah, it's cool. Thank you. Yeah, so it's food waste diverting. It's really flavorful, and it's vegan, which isn't typical for mm. for miso soup to get that umami flavor. Um, and yeah, so it's like quite unique and healthy product. Amazing. I have to, I keep swallowing. I, you know, <laughs> Japanese food is my favorite food. So all of these, these bad words are making me uh, salivate. My goodness. Um, that, that's so interesting. And, and, you know, really, um, I love the serendipitous nature of the story of how things came to be. And, and that's often, you know, the entrepreneurial journey, you kind of manifest these things along the way, you meet the right person who then connects you to a different distributor or supplier, or you see these opportunities. Um, so really interesting to see, you know, how non near this path was, but how you got from point A to point B, um, bringing in some key, key partners along the way. Really incredible. Thank you. Yeah. It's, that's why I say just, you just have to start and then, Mm -hmm. you know, things just, things will happen. (laughs) Things fall into place. Fabulous. So I'm just going to give us a quick. So given that, you know, many people in the Canadian market, not including myself, I feel like I'm very familiar with (laughs) my love for Japanese food, but for those that are not familiar with traditional Japanese cuisines, I imagine that, you know, this customer education component could be a challenge. Um, How have you educated the public, um, you know, and converted people within your network into fabulous, loyal and and returning customers? Um, Well, you know, as I I, I mentioned um, a bit earlier um, at the beginning, I made a huge assumption at the outset of uh, my venture, which was that because onigiri are um, such an amazing um, convenience food that everyone would want them if only if they were available. You know, in retrospect, this was clearly not realistic um, because part of what makes makes the Japanese rice balls so ubiquitous is that in Japan people grow up with them, right? So this was um, kind of, you know, a mistake, I guess, at first. Um, It was very difficult. At farmer's markets, though, you know, you can face people and talk to them. So, um, you know, that was the start. So, but um, because people actually were 
interested in the rice balls. We did get buzz, like we did get like quite a bit of media attention actually, like probably more so than a lot of other food startups. So even though we couldn't, you know, we weren't selling that many, we weren't selling enough to make this a viable business. Um, we had that buzz and we had those connections. So then when we shifted to these grocery products, we could kind of leverage um, that that coverage. Um, so, you know, we have our, our website and social media. We're already kind of like gathering a following in that way, using this product that actually, um, you know, we couldn't sell that much of. Um, and as the company um, evolved, we found um, we were like, quite reliant still on facing people and getting them to taste. So it is a unique product. It's something people aren't familiar with. And we started on a huge sampling campaign campaign and it was effective. Um, we would go to events, we would send, you know, we would have samplers in different cities when we were like going into new markets and this worked, but then, you know, COVID hit <laughs> and um, we kind of had to, uh, you know, rethink this because we had really been just working off of like, if people could just taste it, they'll love it, they'll buy it again. That's what was happening. Um, so um, we've just, you know, last year put our all our focus into um, online and the wholesale sales. And yeah, I guess through just through really focusing on social media, which we hadn't been doing as heavily and ads and we like to provide a lot of, you know, just interesting and useful content about Japanese food and even Japanese culture in general. Um, so, uh, we do it in, yeah, in, in that way. And it's been, it, it has been working. And I think still when people take a chance and just buy it and get it sent to their house, um, we are seeing some repeat customers that way. So, um, yeah, we totally had to shift our thinking about, you know, how to kind of get people hooked this year. But, mm. um, yeah, it's been, I guess with all the shopping online, you know, it's been, it's been going all right. True. Yeah. And, and I love that you just need them to taste it. And, and how do you get, you know, that, that moment, um, and then that potential conversion, which is obviously made very challenging when you're not meeting people <laughs> in person. So I can yeah. completely imagine, um, was scary at first it was. Yeah. And so in terms of, you know, the role of packaging and your experience being a designer, I would love to understand, you know, how you use that experience in telling the story of Abokichi and these, you know, the education components, how you've built that into all of these campaigns and these ads that you're producing, um, how are you connecting, you know, your your business and your passion for the product with your passion for design? I will say, you know, being your own client is mm. really difficult, mm-hmm. um, you know, because when you're working, you know, doing design for somebody else, you can, you know, present your ideas and make them choose, you know, choose one, work on it. It's fine, but um, because it can always be, I guess it's kind of a blessing and a curse. I'm always able to tweak things, adjust things, um, but you know, it's really hard to make it perfect. Um, on the flip side though, you know, having the ability to adapt and change, you know, as needed or as we grow has also been, uh, very helpful. So, I mean, I guess, you know, when I think about the packaging, there's been this timeline of in person at farmer's markets where the storytelling still comes from the person standing there Mm. to shifting to on the shelf where nobody is there. There's thousands of products, um, and then to online where again, there's other, you have the attention more and there's more space, you know, not just mm-hmm. on the package to tell the story. Um, so I find that's actually a lot easier and, um, more effective to, um, 
do the online that just focus on the in-store package, right? Because mm-hmm. you just have a second there. So yeah, like in the farmer's market, we could actually do like A-B testing, which you would usually yeah. do for like, you know, um, you know, tech products. Mm-hmm. But um, we would put the same product out with two different labels and just saw mm-hmm. uh, which one people p- picked up, even though it was the exact same product. So that was like kind of a a very handy way to guide us when we were first trying to get into grocery stores. Um, but, uh, yeah, packaged food packages design is a challenge in <laughs> Canada with like the French, the English and the French. Um, and you know, having to get all our claims and, you know, we're, we're non GMO certified and get, you know, those kind of things all on the package and following all the regulations. It, it is a challenge. So I will say, um, we were just, you know, when it's on the shelf, we just wanted, we just, we just wanted to get the attention by making it as white and simple and different from similar products as possible to just get the attention and get someone to just pick it up, mm. um, and just you know read the ingredients or you know hold it in their hand and turn it, turn it around. Um, by going online and having all the other tools to to communicate has actually been kind of a, a blessing. <laughs> like it's mm. just made things a lot. Um, easier. Fantastic. Fantastic. And so Abokichi is, is really, you know, revolu- revolutionizing, um, you know, food manufacturing. I love this um, food waste diverting, you know, movement, uh, particularly with your instant miso soup. Um, and this recently recognized you as a disruptive change maker in our Inniskillen um, campaign that Startup Canada has been uh, partnering on. So what does being a disruptor really mean to you? What does, how does that resonate with you? Um, yeah, like, thank you. And I think, you know, the food, the food waste is a big issue. I know, like, it's, you know, it matters a lot to us um, as a company. And I know it resonates a lot with um, consumers out there. Um, and it's something we hope we'll see more of. And we actually are working on, you know, some other ideas and things actually, you know, through people we've met, you know, along the way, who are also food producers, who also have byproduct that they don't know what to do with. Um so that's all really great. But, and, you know, in terms of Japanese food in general, I, you know, I think we're disrupting this space a bit too um, in the way that Japanese food is consumed by North Americans. Like Japanese food is often eaten in restaurants, like mm-hmm. sushi and ramen and like the kind of food you'd get at, at um, an izakaya. These aren't typically things that you would make at home, like in, even in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of our products, you know, I think people are bringing them, you know, bringing those flavors into their house um, and, you know, experimenting and having, you know, those authentic uh, Japanese flavors at home, too. Amazing. Um, yeah. Fabulous. Well, thank you. Yeah, that That's great, uh, Jessica. And uh, I think in terms of key takeaways, you know, there have been a number of, of lessons learned, I think, through your, your entrepreneurship journey. And to just start is a key, key, uh, you know, takeaway, I think, from today's conversation. And then, you know, things will come up throughout your journey. What's another key piece of advice that you'd like to leave our network of women entrepreneurs who are tuning in today with? So, yeah, like, like you said, you know, just starting is critical, um, but do it, you know, be lean, uh, you don't need to pour thousands of dollars into a website when you can just, you know, build your first one simply, you know, by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't need to hire expensive consultants um, at the beginning. And, you know, there are all kinds of programs, mentorship programs, grants available. So go find them, make use of them and, um, you know, just start selling before you really pour 
um, tons of money into your venture. Mm. Oh, and also like keep educating yourself and embrace change because it's inevitable. <laughs> exactly. If the last year has taught us anything, <laughs> it's definitely change is here to stay. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for sharing these insights uh, and your entrepreneurial journey. And uh, best of luck. If you need any brand ambassadors or champions, uh, feel free to, to send info my way. I'd be happy to help. <laughs> oh, it would be my pleasure. Yeah. I hope you'll try a product soon. <laughs> you bet. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Women Podcast, where we help women entrepreneurs to start and build thriving businesses. Thank you to the Startup Canada production team, VDC, and Scotiabank for helping us to power women entrepreneurs. Visit startupcan.ca forward slash women to download the playbook, Resources for Women Entrepreneurs, with a comprehensive list of support for you and your business. And visit startupcan.ca for the latest episodes of the Startup Canada podcast, hosted by Rick Spence, and plug into the Startup Canada network. Until next time, I'm Kayla Isabel. It's time to choose to challenge the status quo and unleash the economic potential of women. Women.